Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is Episode 11, Zapruder Part 3. What you are about to hear is, I think, one of the best storytells yet on this podcast series. It's what Abraham Zapruder does with the film in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. It's not a story that is told that often, but it is actually pretty fascinating. One more quick topic while I am on this wander. I just want to say that there are a lot of people I want to dedicate episodes to. The list is pretty long. As you know, the first dedication I made was to my sons, Alec and Austin. You know, one of the great derivatives of doing this series was that I've gotten a chance to touch base with a good many old friends that I haven't often spoken to on a regular basis. Three professional colleagues of mine from 20 years ago reemerged a bit for me as I began to make this podcast, and they began to listen. The good humor and friendship that we had some 15 or 20 years ago has been dormant for a while. Not the friendships, just the good humor and the human connection. I think a lot of us have found avenues to reconnect in this period of covidery. I don't know, is that a term or did I just make that one up? Anyway, that's really been true for a lot of us. But today, I want to recognize these three folks. So I'm dedicating this episode to Buddy, Dusty, and Sissy. Not often do you get a chance to work in an office where everyone genuinely loves to work with one another. Well, that's how it was some 20 years ago for a group of us. And you three were part of the magic that made that happen. In 2001, I was already more than a decade into reading heavily about the JFK assassination. It would take another generation and 20 years of time and the invention of this thing called a podcast to get me to reach back out to you all, and I'm so glad that I did. All right, well, enough of the ramble. I guess that goes nicely with all the wandering on this show. So without further ado, let's listen to Episode 11, Zapruder, Part 3. Shots. We don't know. 
The president's limousine had quickly sped up, and in a heartbeat, it made its way under the triple underpass and out of view as it sped to Parkland Hospital. Zapruder and Sitzman made their way off the pedestal. Zapruder was clearly now in shock and wandering around Dealey Plaza. He had seen it all, including the gory details, and seen it right through his own camera lens. He knew the president was already dead, or would be shortly. No one survives a shot like that. Sitzman was in shock as well, and she was also wandering in the plaza for a moment. They did so as the chaos began to engulf Dealey. It took a moment, but Zapruder began to regain some level of composure and realized that he had to make his way back to the office. By this time, word of the shooting was spreading rapidly. Darwin Payne was a reporter at the Dallas Times-Herald. He had gotten word of what had happened, and he had just finished running the full distance to the plaza, which was about five blocks from his office where the newspaper was located. He immediately began trying to interview witnesses. Either Sitzman found Payne or Payne found Sitzman, and she relayed to Payne that her boss had taken a film of the assassination. She told the reporter that they had both been standing on the concrete pedestal and that both of them had seen the incident. Payne took short notes during the conversation with Mrs. Sitzman, and he wrote down that the president, after the first shot, slumped over in the seat and that the second shot hit the president in the right temple. Ironically, Sitzman was completely ignored by local and federal authorities, and her eyewitness testimony was not taken. Conspiracy theorists would ask, was this intentional? Well, perhaps. Despite that oversight, she would become a well-known participant because of the Zapruder film. At the end of the day, the fact that she was never interviewed by law enforcement is another clear example of where authorities in this case simply didn't go looking for an answer that they didn't want to hear. She would, however, get a chance to tell her story. Three years later, her voice was heard in the now iconic assassination book, Six Seconds in Dallas, written by Josiah Thompson. In that book, she is quoted as saying that the shot hit directly in front of us or almost directly in front of us, and then on the side of his face, above the ear, and to the right, and we could see his brains come out. You know, his head opening. She stated that the shot occurred while the limousine was almost directly in front of them, and certainly saying that the location of the shot was above the ear and to the front implies that she thought the shot was from the front. But that's not definitive, particularly in this complex area of forensics and evaluating bullet performance as we began to touch upon in the last episode. Around that same time, Harry McCormick, a reporter with the Dallas Morning News, had also arrived on the scene in Dealey. As luck would have it, Zapruder was the first witness that McCormick would stumble upon, and he too began asking questions of Zapruder. Zapruder quickly responded to McCormick that he was sure based on what he saw, that the president was already dead. McCormick wanted to interview Zapruder right there on the spot, but Zapruder said no. Zapruder stated that he wanted to talk to the federal authorities first and perhaps the Secret Service agent. Zapruder turned and began to leave the plaza. McCormick said, where are you going? 
And Zapruder replied, back to my office. Zapruder told McCormick that he had caught it all on film. And McCormick's response back was, the Secret Service will want to see it. That was just what Abraham Zapruder wanted to hear. McCormick personally knew Forrest Sorrells, the special agent in charge of the Dallas District of the Secret Service. He offered to reach out to Forrest. In the ensuing minutes, he would locate Sorrells. Zapruder continued back to his office, and once he got there, he gave the camera to his secretary for a moment of safekeeping. He also asked her to call the police and let them know that he had the film. Dutifully, she made the call, and she told the Dallas police that they had a film of the assassination. There was never a callback in response to it, just one more bungling that occurred by the Dallas Police Department that day in the midst of all the chaos. But despite the lack of follow-up related to the call, the police department did eventually find out that the film existed. Zapruder's employees, some of whom remained in the plaza, continued to talk about it as they too were in the hazy days and trauma that engulfed everyone present in that shocking moment. Zapruder's employees in the plaza told police about the existence of their boss's film And soon thereafter, a pair of officers with shotguns in tow showed up at the office of Jennifer Juniors, demanding to see Zapruder and to take possession of the film. Zapruder flatly refused to hand the film over to the police officers. By this time, Darwin Payne, that reporter from the Dallas Times-Herald, had been led over to Zapruder's offices by several of Zapruder's employees. He entered Zapruder's office and started a conversation with Zapruder. This reporter knew how valuable that film would be and immediately offered to pay for the film rights. Zapruder continued to resist, knowing that he needed to get the film into the hands of the authorities. Thinking that if he got his boss on the phone, that might persuade Zapruder to change his mind, Payne arranged for a call. Eventually, they ended up in a conversation by phone with James Chambers, who was Payne's boss. In a rather humorous historical moment, Chambers offered Zapruder $200 for the film. As you might expect, Zapruder demurred. Other minor monetary offers from the two reporters continued throughout the day as events unfolded and they were all rejected by Zapruder. By this time, McCormick had reached Forrest Sorrells. They arranged to go to Zapruder's office together. As McCormick and Sorrells arrived at Zapruder's office, you can imagine the scene. Now on site were two reporters, one each from the two largest and competing daily papers in Dallas. Right there and in Zapruder's offices just minutes after the assassination, both papers trying to compete at the very same moment for who gets a copy of that film. Well, Zapruder now had the government man in authority in his office, Forrest Sorrells. He quickly dismissed the two reporters and he began to talk to Forrest. It was clear now that Zapruder was regaining his wits and was beginning to think more clearly. He realized that the authorities needed a copy of this film as quickly as they could get it and that he also needed to preserve his own rights to it as it was pretty clear that this film was going to have substantial commercial value. Zapruder also knew that, in the shocking aftermath of the assassination, 
He needed advice and counsel to ensure that he was thinking straight and that he was doing the right thing. He phoned his personal attorney at least six times that afternoon to discuss the circumstance and to be sure that he was taking the proper steps. He called his wife and his daughter as well. As a side note, this is one of the most important examples of high-profile evidence related to a crime committed in the 20th century. Normally, evidence in a murder case is retained by the state. Who possesses it and who got to see it was going to be a big deal in this circumstance. Little did he know at that moment that the matter would take on another legal twist and become even more complex once Oswald was killed and the process was without a related murder trial in the state of Texas. As a side note, and for folks who want to learn more about the legal aspects of this evidence matter, this is a fascinating subject and is worth another wander later in the podcast series. Sorrells convinced Zapruder that they should all go together to get the film processed and then have copies made, certified copies, at least one of which could be handed over to the authorities immediately thereafter, with the original being retained by Zapruder. Zapruder agreed. There was no doubt that, by this time, Zapruder realized that the film was likely going to fetch a tremendous financial payment as well as become a piece of important evidence in a murder investigation. That afternoon, in those initial discussions with Zapruder, Sorrells would later recall him saying that he was going to sell the film for the highest price that he could get for it. Zapruder knew that he needed to get the film processed quickly. Rumors about the film's existence were spreading fast already. Eventually, they agreed that the right first step was to go to WFAA, the local TV station that was the ABC television affiliate in Dallas. They thought that WFAA might possibly be able to develop the film. Jay Watson was one of the newsmen at WFAA at the time, and some of his broadcasts, including the interview with the Newman family, are important videotaped histories of the eyewitness accounts in Dealey Plaza that occurred right after the shooting on November 22nd. The Newmans were one of the closest eyewitnesses to the headshot, standing on the north side of the Dealey Plaza at the foot of the grassy knoll. They scrambled out of the building, and six of them, including the two police officers, piled into a squad car and made their way to WFAA. While they were waiting to find out about the possibility of film processing at the station, Jay Watson conducted a short interview of Zapruder. By this time, Zapruder's partner, Erwin Schwartz, had joined them and was present at the TV station. Erwin held the Bell and Howell movie camera in his own hands for safekeeping as Zapruder appeared on camera with Watson. The official news about President Kennedy's assassination came over the wires while Zapruder was still at the TV station. That was not news to Zapruder, but the reality of what was happening was setting in. On camera, there was a confusing exchange between Watson and Zapruder about exactly where the fire may have come from. In the lore of Kennedy assassination history, it would be one of the first examples of where a statement could be used to support the idea of a shot coming from either the sixth floor or a shot from the grassy knoll. You see, Zapruder's position on the north side of Elm Street, 
on the grassy knoll was a natural position that allowed him to have a visual sight and proximity to both the area behind the picket fence and the sixth floor of the school book depository. Zapruder responded to Watson's question and indicated that he was in the line of fire. It was obvious how this could be interpreted either way. Someone standing relatively close to the limousine at the time of the shot, if they were on the grassy knoll, would have potentially interpreted the idea that they were in the line of fire from a shot coming down from the depository. They would also be in the line of fire for a shot that actually came right behind them, a shot taken from the picket fence and aimed directly at the president's limousine, which would have been right in front of them at the time. Both scenarios work for the idea that you were in the line of fire. Years later, Bill Newman, who was the witness I referred to earlier, who was in Dealey Plaza with his young family that day and might have been the person on the north side of Elm who was actually closest to the presidential limousine at the very moment of the headshot. He would comment in later years, rather kiddingly, that lone gunman theory advocates would recreate his crouched position on the grassy lawn, taking a picture from an angle that showed the school book depository in the background. And alternatively, conspiracy theorists would take the same picture of him with the picket fence in the background. Newman was another witness that, for whatever reason, went from thinking that the shot initially came from behind him to a later view of just simply accepting the government's view that the shot came from the depository. As a side note for you, yourself, as a jury member, it's interesting to chronicle who has strong opinions on those facts at the time of the assassination and which witnesses never wavered, and also those witnesses who later wavered. Why is that? Did they not have strong opinions to begin with? Were they afraid of something? Based on the 30-plus years I've studied the subject, I think the plethora of witnesses fall into one of these two buckets. I do think that some of them were just ordinary citizens who clearly understood the significance of their eyewitness account and, frankly, were scared to death. That certainly could have impacted their migration of thought as the mystery and apparent danger began to gather around the investigation. Later, we will get to Bill Newman's testimony. He was a very young man with a new wife and two young children who were both there that day. As it turned out, he was one of those lucky witnesses that was identified by WFAA that afternoon and brought to the television station for an interview. What is notable is that he was quick to point out that he had not seen anyone take a shot. I've watched that clip many times, and I think I know how important it was at that moment in his own mind for him to make sure that the world knew that fact. He was later deposed by the Warren Commission about what they saw, he and his wife, that day. It was certainly graphic and corroborating, but most of what he said in his initial statement was not controversial or that helpful. He was never brought before the actual Warren Commission itself for additional questioning, even though he was the one citizen in the United States who was closest to the limousine at the moment of the final headshot to President Kennedy and saw the shot hit in clear view on his side of the street. He was almost close enough to touch the limo. When they arrived at Station WFAA, 
They discussed the processing with Bert Ship, who happened to be the chief photographer at the station. He was pretty clear that they didn't have the capabilities to process that type of film. You'll recall my earlier discussions about the precision cutting process necessary to split the film down the middle and turn 16mm film into an 8mm film. Ship quickly called the Kodak processing lab that was located near Love Field, the airport in Dallas. Initially, the station was unable to make contact with anyone at the Kodak lab, but eventually made arrangements with the Kodak supervisor on duty that day, Jack Harrison, to come over and have the film immediately processed. After the interview at WFAA was completed, Zapruder, Schwartz, and McCormick loaded themselves back into the squad car with the two policemen and the Bell and Howell camera in hand, and they got to the Kodak lab around 2.45 p.m. Zapruder remained in constant vigil once he made his way inside the lab. Inside the building, he carefully monitored the chain of custody, passing the film over to the Kodak officials, and then carefully documenting what was happening. During this time, Zapruder continued to phone his attorney. In later years, at a 6-4 museum interview with Jack Harrison, who, as I mentioned, was the Kodak plant supervisor that day in Dallas, Jack had a brief moment with Zapruder as they were waiting for the film to process. And it was clear Jack's recollection of what Zapruder said was that he thought he had heard gunshots from behind him. He wasn't referring to the sixth floor. McCormick was there, too, and continued his attempts to buy the film from Zapruder, but he was unsuccessful. He attempted to try and explain to Zapruder that Zapruder had no experience in managing the commercialization and sale of such items. But this was all to no avail, and Zapruder continued to refuse his efforts. Soon, the 16mm version of the film was developed. It was ready to be viewed before it was split in half and made into an 8mm film. The Kodak plant had the special equipment that would allow them to review the film in its entirety before it was split in half. Soon, the 16mm version of the film was developed. Looking ahead... Zapruder discussed how they were going to make copies of the film, as one would definitely be needed for delivery to the authorities. The technicians indicated that if copies were to be made, they would need to duplicate the film before it was split down the middle. Another complicating factor arose. Unfortunately, the Kodak plant did not have the technical capacity to do that. What next, then? The Kodak technicians quickly decided that the Jameson Film Lab, a lab that was cross-town, could probably make copies of the silent 16mm original. They called Jameson and confirmed that the company could perform the procedure. Jameson said they could, but yet another obstacle then occurred. Jameson, at that moment, didn't have in stock any duplicating film perforated for 8mm. Officials at the Kodak processing plant provided Zapruder with three rolls of a Kodachrome film designed to be used with tungsten lights. This film was not optimal for making a duplicate. In fact, there was specific film that would normally be used for duplication. It just wasn't available at that moment. But this was all that was available, and it would have to do. So, it was decided. 
they would make their way over to Jameson and have the duplicates made. But before they did that, everyone wanted to see what was on that 16-millimeter film before it was split. The anticipation was building. No one except Zerpruder himself knew exactly what had been captured on that film. A small group of them made their way to a modest projection room inside the Kodak processing plant. There, they got the very first look of what was on that 16-millimeter film. In later years, in his own words, Erwin Schwartz described it as needlepoint clear, and it absolutely stunned the viewers. The back-and-forth communications between Zapruder and his attorney confirmed the decision to obtain some sort of affidavit from the technicians who actually processed the Kodachrome film. Zapruder got a formally signed statement from Philip Chamberlain at Kodak, swearing to the work that had been done and ensuring that the film was not cut, mutilated, or altered in any manner during processing, and that it was not shown to any person other than employees of said laboratory of known integrity in the ordinary course of handling same. Clearly, it was legal-type language to ensure that Kodak had kept the film completely intact, and then only a handful of trusted people had seen it. It's conjecture on my part, but I am sure Zapruder and his attorney included the language regarding limited viewing as they knew that this would be an important element of authenticity and exclusivity when negotiating the price of the film upon sale. If another copy had gotten out, it would have severely degraded the market value of the film. There were similar and obvious considerations around it as evidence as well. After they finished the viewing, Zapruder took possession of the process film and the additional rolls of film needed for duplication that Kodak had given him, and he and Schwartz headed back to their offices at the Dow Tex building. Once back at their own office, they paused for a moment. Schwartz later recalled that he and Zapruder had a glass of whiskey. It was a hell of a day, I'm sure, so that's not surprising. What's surprising is that they didn't have two. Well, they still had some work to do. After they paused to have a drink, sometime after 6.30 p.m., they headed over to the Jameson Company to have the film duplicated. Duplicating film is a bit of a complicated technical process. The end objective is to get film duplicates to portray the light and the colors and the scenes exactly as they are in the original. The technical team of Jameson knew the enormity of the task they were about to undertake, and so they took careful measure to ensure that the duplication was going to come out as best it could. Once the settings were determined, it took about an hour to duplicate the film, and they made three duplicate copies. Similar to the sworn statement that he had obtained at Kodak, Zapruder got something similar from the folks at the Jameson lab. He received a total of five affidavits that night from people at Jameson. He was determined to have good evidence around that all the way through the process. For those of you that listened to our earlier episode or know about film, you know that the sprocket holes, once the 16-millimeter film was split and the two pieces are then reattached, only show up at that point on one side of the film, and therefore only on what side of what you are viewing. Because there is a lack of film in the actual bracket holes, 
they show up as bright white blocks, absent a picture when they are projected onto a screen. The duplicating process used that night at Jameson could not reproduce the portion of the images that are on the extreme side of the film located in that section between and above and below each sprocket hole. So on the duplicate copies, that necessarily reduced the duplicated image by approximately 22% of the total. That's an important point to note, which is why viewing the original film is important in that it shows a wider depiction of the scene being shot. Years later, better copies of the originals became available, showing the images around the sprocket holes. A few years later, there was also some speculation about the total number of copies that may have been made on that day. Three was the official count. Given the time frame involved and the fact that each copy had to be made individually one at a time from the original, it was pretty clear that the hour or so that they spent inside of Jameson having the copies made would have made it difficult to produce more than the three copies that Zapruder stated were made that night. After finishing the duplication at Jameson, Zapruder and Schwartz then drove back to Kodak and had the rest of the process completed. The splitting of the film down the middle and the transition of the original and the duplicates from a 16mm film to an 8mm film. By the time they finished this last step at the Kodak lab, it was already about 9 o'clock at night, and the next step was to locate Forrest Sorrels and give him a copy of the film. They made their way quickly to the Dallas Police Department, but the police office was still in chaos, as Lee Harvey Oswald was already in custody as a suspect, and the building was full of reporters and others. Eventually, they located Sorrels. Surprisingly, he did not want to receive the film there and asked that they deliver it to his offices that were in another building a short drive away. Zapruder and Schwartz exited the police department and got into their car and drove the few minutes over to the small Secret Service office at Herve Street. There they handed over two copies of the film to Secret Service agent Max Phillips, giving him the first and third duplicate copies. They got a signed receipt from Agent Phillips and then they left. Shortly thereafter, the Secret Service flew a copy of the film to Washington, D.C. by commercial airplane courier with a covering memorandum that night that had a time noted on it of 9.55 p.m. This cover memorandum was one more piece of evidence that was ignored by the Warren Commission. At the end of that covering memo that accompanied the film to Washington, Agent Phillips ended it by including the following statement. According to Mr. Zapruder, the position of the assassin was behind Mr. Zapruder. Well, I know it's been a long day, and you yourself, a member of the jury, have a lot to take in. I'll bet you're tired. But if you're like me, another member of the jury, you want to hear more. You'll retire to the sequester of your COVID hotel, and hopefully you'll be back tomorrow to listen to more testimony and to the story of the JFK assassination, where fact is more fascinating than fiction. We have Abraham Zapruder to thank for the only film of the assassination that caught the actual shooting of the president and Governor Conley. 
But Mr. Zapruder also causes us to wonder what he really thought about the shots that day and where they came from. Zapruder was a businessman with a very sharp mind. He was a man who could think ahead and a man who understood the world a bit. A man who was wary of the oppression that the government could inflict. His family had been in Russia and they were no stranger to oppression. There is no reason to believe that Zapruder was influenced at that very moment by anything nefarious that was happening around him. But after all, someone just killed the most powerful man in the free world. Doesn't that mean that something nefarious is going on by definition? And you, Mr. Zapruder, just had a bird's eye view. No one knows exactly what you did or didn't see at this point. So for our audience... You yourself as a juror, as you study Zapruder's personal background in history, well, it's not hard to understand how he might have already been thinking ahead about a lot of things. At that moment in the Kodak lab, he might have been speaking with all candor to Jack Harrison. But later, as the ramifications of what was beginning to develop around the investigation became apparent to many, he certainly would have subsequently become aware of the controversy of speaking out about possible shots behind the fence. Whether he was just unsure from the very beginning and therefore easily persuadable either way or afraid, he can be tallied as one of those witnesses that never came out strongly for a shot behind the fence, even though it is surely his initial impression. His Warren Commission testimony said so, under oath, but in the end, it did not strongly support a shooter on the knoll. It really didn't rule out one either. The Warren Commission attorney, our friend Wesley Liebler, was careful not to be too probative on the topic when Zapruder gave his testimony months after the assassination. By then, it was 1964, and the word, locally in Dallas, was that speaking out about such things was not a good idea. Thank you for listening to Episode 11 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.